Welcome back to the Vale of Cedars. It's good to be recording again after the hiatus. First, a brief recap of what happened in part one. Our protagonist, Marie, a Jew in hiding, though in love with the Gentile Arthur Stanley, has married her cousin Don Ferdinand. This chapter picks up the story, and the action is moved to the city of Segovia. It's here that we start to see the real plot of this book begin, and it's very exciting. Today's after show is also very special. We have an interview for the first time with author Ariel Vishni, and we are discussing the tropes of the fair Jewess in The Vale of Cedars and in other literature. What's presented in this episode is a shortened version of that interview, but we will have the full version available on IEA's website at aeaea.co. Thanks so much for coming back, and I hope you enjoy the show. The Vale of Cedars, Chapter 8 Slight are the outward signs of evil thought. Within, within, twas there the spirit wrought. Love shows all changes, hate ambition guile. Betray no further than the bitter smile. Byron Our readers must imagine that nearly a year and a half has elapsed since the conclusion of our last chapter. During that interval, the outward life of Marie had passed in a calm, even stream, which, could she have succeeded in entirely banishing thoughts of her past, would have been unalloyed enjoyment. Her marriage, as we hinted in our fourth chapter, had been solemnized in public, with all the form and ceremony of the Catholic Church, and with a splendor incumbent on the high rank and immense wealth of the bridegroom. In compliance with Marie's wishes, however, she had not yet been presented to the queen. Delicate health, which was the fact, for a terrible fever had succeeded the varied emotions of her wedding day, and her late bereavement, was her husband's excuse for Isabella for her non-appearance, an excuse graciously accepted. The rather, that the Queen of Castile was then much engrossed with political changes and national reforms, than from any failing of interest in Don Ferdinand's bride. Changed as was her estate from her lovely home in the Vale of Cedars, where she had dwelt as the sole companion of an ailing parent, to the mistress of a large establishment in one of the most populous cities of Castile, the idolized wife of the governor of the town, and, as such, the object of popular love and veneration, and called upon frequently to exert influence and authority. Still Marie did not fail performing every new duty with a grace and sweetness binding her more and more closely to the doting heart of her husband. For her inward self, Marie was calm, nay at intervals almost happy. She had neither prayed nor struggled in vain, and she felt as if her very prayer was answered, in the fact that Arthur Stanley had been appointed to some high and honorable post in Sicily, and they were not therefore likely yet to meet again. The wife of such a character as Morales could not have continued wretched unless perversely resolved so to be. But his very virtues, while they inspired the deepest reverence towards him, engendered some degree of fear. Could she really have loved him as he believed she did? This feeling would not have existed, but its foundation was the constant thought that she was deceiving him. The remorse 
that something to conceal, which, if discovered, must blight his happiness forever and estrange him from her, were it only for the past deceit. Had his character been less lofty, his confidence in her less perfect, his very love less fond and trusting, she could have borne her trial better. But to one true, ingenious, open as herself, what could be more terrible than the unceasing thought that she was acting a part, and to her husband? Often and often she longed, with an almost irresistible impulse, to fling herself at his feet and beseech him not to pierce her heart with such fond trust, but the impulse was forcibly controlled. What would such confession avail her now, or him, save to wound? Amongst the many Spaniards of noble birth who visited Don Ferdinand's was one Don Luis Garcia, whose actual rank and office no one seems to know, and yet in affairs of church or state, camp or council, he was always so associated that it was impossible to discover to which of these he was allied. In fact, there was a mystery around him which no one could solve. Notwithstanding his easy, nay, it was by some thought fascinating manners, his presence generally created a restraint felt intuitively by all, yet comprehended by none. That there is such, an emotion as antipathy mercifully placed within us, often as a warning, we do most strenuously believe. But we seldom trace and recognize it as such, till circumstances reveal the truth. The real character of Don Luis, and the office he held, our future pages will disclose. Suffice it here to state that there was no lack of personal attractions or mental graces to account for the universal yet unspoken and unacknowledged dislike which he inspired. Apparently in the prime of health, he yet seems to have relinquished all the pleasures and even the passions of life, austere, even rigid in those acts of piety and personal mortifications enjoined by his religion, voluntary fasts, privations, nights supposed to be passed in vigil and in penance, occasional rich gifts to patron saints and their human followers, an absence of all worldly feeling, even ambition, some extraordinary deeds of benevolence, all rendered him an object of actual veneration to the priests and monks with which the goodly city of Segovia abounded. And even the populace declared him faultless, as a Catholic and a man, even while their inward shuddering belied the words. Don Ferdinand's Morales alone was untroubled with these contradictory emotions. Incapable of hypocrisy himself, he could not imagine it in others. His nature seemed actually too frank and true for the admission even of a prejudice. Little did he dream that his name, his wealth, his favor with the queen, his influence with her subjects, had already stamped him in the breast of the man to whom his house and heart alike were open, as an object of suspicion and a spile. And that ere a year had passed over his wedded life, these feelings were ripened, cherished, changed from the mere thought of persecution to palpable resolve by personal and ungovernable hate. Don Luis had never known love, not even the fleeting fancy, much less the actual passion of the sensualist, or the spiritual aspirings of true affection. Of the last, in fact, he was utterly incapable. No feeling with him was of an evanescent nature, 
Under the cold austerity of the ordinary man lay coals of living fire. It mattered not under what guise excited hate, revenge, ambition, he was capable of all. At love alone he had ever laughed, exulting in his own security. The internal condition of Spain, as we have before said, had been, until the accession of Isabella and Ferdinand, one of the grossest license and most fearful immorality. Encouraged in the indulgence of every passion by the example of the court, no dictates of either religion or morality ever interfered to protect the sanctity of home. Unbridled desires were often the sole cause of murderous assaults, and these fearful crimes, continually passing unpunished, encouraged the supposition that men's passions were given to be their sole guide, before which honor, innocence, and virtue fell powerless. The vigorous proceedings of Ferdinand and Isabella had already remedied these terrible abuses. Over the public safety and reform they had some power, but over the hearts of individuals they had none. And there were still some with whom past license was far more influencing than present restraint and legal severity. Still some who paused at no crime so that the gratification of their passions was ensured, and foremost amongst these though by his secret office pledged to the annihilation of all domestic and social ties, as regarded his own person, was Don Luis Garcia. For rather more than a year, Don Ferdinand Morales had enjoyed the society of his young wife uninterruptedly, save by occasional visits of brief duration to Valladolid and Leon, where Isabel alternately held her court. He was now, however, summoned to attend the sovereigns on a visit to Ferdinand's paternal dominions, an office which would cause his absence for a much longer interval, he obeyed with extreme reluctance. Nor did Marie feel the separation less. There was, in some measure, a feeling of security in his presence, which, whenever he was absent, gave place to fearful tremblings as to what might transpire to shake her faith in her, ere he returned. Resolved that not the very faintest breath of scandal should touch his wife, Marie, during the absence of Morales, always kept herself secluded. This time, her retirement was stricter than ever, and greater, then, was her indignation and astonishment when about a fortnight before her husband's expected return, and in direct contradiction to her commands, Don Luis Garcia was admitted to her presence and nothing but actual flight, for which she was far too proud and self-possessed, could have averted the private interview which followed. The actual words which passed, we know not, but, after a very brief interval of careless converse on the part of Garcia, something he said earnestly, and in the tones of pitying sympathy which caused the cheek and lips of Maria to blanch to marble, and her whole frame to shiver, and then grow rigid as if turns to stone. Could it be that the fatal secret which she believed was known only to herself and Arthur, that she had loved another ere she wedded Ferdinand, had been penetrated by the man towards whom she had ever felt the most intense abhorrence? And that he dared refer to it as a source of sympathy, as a proof that he could feel for her more than her unsuspecting husband? Why was speech so frozen up within her that she could not for the moment, answer, and give him back the lie. 
but that silence of deadly terror lasted not long. He had continued to speak. At first, she was unconscious of his change of tone, words, and even action. But when his actual meaning flashed upon her, voice, strength, energy returned in such a burst of womanly indignation, womanly majesty, that Garcia himself, skilled in every art of evil as he was, quailed beneath it, and felt that he was powerless, save by violence and revenge. While that terrible interview lasted, the wife of Morales had not failed, but when once more alone, the most deadly terror took possession of her. She had, indeed, so triumphed as to banish Garcia, defeated from her presence. But fearful threats of vengeance were in that interview divulged. Allusions to some secret power, over which he was the head, armed with authority even greater than that of the sovereigns, mysteriously spoken but still almost strangely intelligible, that in her betrayal of her silence lay the safety or the danger of her husband, all compelled to the conviction that her terror and her indignation at the daring insult must be buried deep in her own breast. Even while the suspicion that Don Luis knew all the past, though how her wildest imagination could not discover, and that therefore she was in his power, urged her yet more to a full confession to her husband. Better if his heart must be wrung by her than by a foe, and yet she shrunk in anguish from the task. She was, however, deceived as to the amount of Garcia's knowledge of her past life. Accustomed to read human nature under all its varied phases, employing an unusually acute penetration so to know his fellows as to enable him, when he needed, to create the greatest amount of misery he had simply perceived that Marie's love for her husband was of a different nature than his for her, and that she had some secret to conceal. On this he had based his words. His suspicions were unhappily confirmed by the still, yet expressive agony they had occasioned. Baffled as in some measure he had been, his internal rage that he should have so quailed before a woman naturally increased the whirlwind of contending passions. But schooled by his impenetrable system of hypocrisy to outward quietness and control, he waited, certain that circumstances would either of themselves occur or be so guided by him as to give him ample means of triumph and revenge. Welcome to my interview with Ariel Vishni for The Veil of Cedars. There will be two versions of it, an edited version, which will go with the post-show of the episode for Chapter 8, and a full-length version, which will be available on the IEA website at 
A-E-A-E-A.co. Uh, thanks so much for being here with me, Ariel. Well, thank you for having me. Um, why don't you uh, start by giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Uh, sure. All right. So my name is Ariel Vishni. Um, online, I write under AR Vishni. And I am by day, well, with the pandemic going on, everything is chaos. But by day, I'm <laughs> attorney, a writer, and an occasional television extra. Um, let's see, my background um, and a lot of my interest in writing is in sort of issues around Orientalism and the figure of the fair Jewess in 19th century British literature. Uh, that was my sort of thing in college. And there are even ways I was able to do some of that stuff in law school, which was cool. Um, oh, that's awesome. Oh, thanks. Um, so I've written on that. Um, I also am, you know, working on a few children's books that I can't talk too much to right now, um, but involve some of these same issues and some of the things I'm sure we might talk about today. And yeah, and I also write, um, I've written a number of articles for Hey Alma um, about issues of Jewish representation in film and television. Yeah, and that is actually how I got to the Vale of Cedars as a whole. I had never heard about it growing up, even doing you know the the twelve years of Jewish day school. Just had never been on my radar until I read uh, your article in Hey Alma, which got me to this show. So I figured it would be very appropriate to have you on as uh, my first guest. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm really thrilled when you reached out. Um, I'm always happy to sort of introduce books to people. Um, the fact that it sort of not only introduced you to the book, but sort of, you know, spawned a whole podcast is really exciting. Yeah, um, that was, yeah, because the whole article, which I will link to uh, in the notes section for this, was about books and stories that should be adapted. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, yeah, that's, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a big TV budget and I can't get Rachel Weiss, but... You know, besides that, why not? You know, anything is possible. Um, I, <laughs> I think, you know, we're nearly there, probably. Nearly there. That's true. With uh, with with SAG-AFTRA uh, shutting down production, and rightly so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think this is a moment sort of in time for everyone to sort of, you know, shoot your shot and take some risks, I think, you know, reinvent yourself. You know, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. That is absolutely. I 100% agree with that. Uh, and definitely, you know, getting guests on I'm like, oh, hey, be a guest on the show. What else are you doing right now? Because a lot of the other people who uh, I've sent out like questions for are professors or people like that who in general aren't doing that much over the summer and even more so now in a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. No, I even found that too. I, for sort of an unrelated writing reason, I reached out to a professor um, who wrote a book I loved about Emma Lazarus. So it's connected to 19th century Jewish women. And had this wonderful interaction with her. And I think part of that is right now that just people are home and on their computers um, and stuck around. And so, yeah, no, but like again, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to discuss the book um, and anything that you want to talk about. Awesome. Uh, yeah, because there's there's so much I don't know still. I have so much research and it's been great, but actually having someone to talk to uh, is a nice change of pace for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first thing I want to talk with you about is the the fair Jewess trope. Mm -hmm. um, 
can you start off by just giving the basic explanation of what that means? Uh, sure. So the fair Jewess is a trope that you see a lot in 19th century literature. Um, and it's sort of the short version is that it's a Jewish damsel in distress. And you see a lot of these. Uh, they are, there's sort of different versions of it. And you see sort of a lot of discourse around it within sort of the canon of 19th century literature. But that's the sort of the short version. It's Jewish um, damsel in distress. Its origins are really sort of predate 19th century literature. You can sort of go back and look to like Merchant of Venice uh, and Shakespeare, and that's sort of the origin of the trope. Okay, so like Jessica specifically is our OG fair Jewess. Yes. And really, I mean, Merchant, it's sort of difficult to understate how important Merchant is to sort of all of English Jewish literature. Um, huh. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, it's, it basically informs like every single depiction of a Jewish person you see in especially sort of the British canon. Um, and because you get these two figures, you have Shylock, who is sort of the prototypical, like avaricial, greedy Jew who is a money lender and he likes money more than anything um, and has a bit of bloodlust. Um, and then you have Jessica, who is this, you know, beautiful, you know, helpless woman who needs to be rescued by a young and handsome and strapping Christian. Um, and yeah, and that's basically sort of the short form of that trope. And you see it all throughout, and especially in the Victorian era, that really becomes very prominent um, in, yeah, in the literature. So yeah, uh, which is, that kind of answers a little bit of my next question, which was, this was a trope done uh, widely throughout literature, not Jewish authors alone, though clearly uh, Grace Aguilar um, is playing with that, but this was just a widely used trope throughout various English literature. Yes. And actually what's interesting is a lot of where you see it originally comes specifically from non-Jewish authors. Um, mm-hmm. So again, the big one is Shakespeare. Uh, and then moving into like the late 18th and early 19th century, you have uh, this sort of phenomenon of these conversionist societies in Britain, uh, which were these societies set up uh, to sort of convert the Jews. Uh, mm-hmm. They were sort of like, you know, do you, they, they would, their activities uh, resemble a lot of like the missionary work you see um, happening elsewhere in the British Empire. Um, and I guess, it, you know, converting the Jews, if you couldn't go on a big mission to somewhere, you know, far away, <laughs> you could go and convert Jews right down the street. Um, so, anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's the takeout option the takeout of missionary option. work. Right. Participate in the colonial project right in your backyard. Amazing. Yeah. So what happened, and with those societies, there came came up this sort of subgenre of popular literature called the conversionist novel. Mm-hmm. And these were in sort of popular fiction that were very tropey. And they all sort of boil down to stories about Jewish women who are all beautiful and lovely, and they have horrible families, and they want to escape their families. They find some handsome, strapping Christian man who wants to whisk them away, um, and she wants to be whisked away. He does it. They then, 
you know, just as things are looking great, she falls deathly ill and on her deathbed converts um, and you know, passes peacefully from this world. So it's sort of the three big major things you see in a lot of these conversionist novels are, yeah, beautiful Jewish woman who hates her family. Uh, you know, Jewish woman falls in love with a Christian man. She converts and she dies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we've already seen uh, two and a half out of three. And at this point, we're up to chapter seven. So mm-hmm. if you forget exactly what happens in each chapter, that's right after her father dies. Uh, we've already seen a big thing of that already. Arthur Stanley is such a prototypical English hero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he really, he comes from this. He's, yeah, he is such a stock character. <laughs> No, and, and you can see what, what um, Aguilar is really doing here is playing with some of these tropes from these popular novels. Um, and probably the, and the other big source um, of the trope in which she's playing with is the novel Ivanhoe, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know was published originally, I think, in 1819. Um, it was written by Walter Scott, who was a non-Jew. And long story short, um, Ivanhoe is everything you think you know about um, the Middle Ages, it's sort of the medieval romance that launches a whole interest in medieval romance. Now, at the heart of the story, it's a love triangle between a sort of Ivanhoe, who is a disinherited Saxon knight um, who served, you know, Richard the Lionheart um, on a crusade. Um, you have the Saxon lady Rowena, who's fair and lovely and doesn't speak very much. And you have Rebecca, who is the, you know, the Jewess. And you, and that was sort of the other major influence for not just Aguilar, but a lot of the other Jewish women who write about being Jewish women um, mm-hmm. throughout the century, because one, the Ivanhoe is extremely popular. And two, Rebecca is sort of another example you see of someone trying to play with some of those big tropes, um, you know, even uh, Wilfred of Ivanhoe is sort of the blonde, you know, prototypical knight in shining armor. Um, Rebecca is sort of everything you would imagine about the sort of a fair Jewess, um, but she actually lives at the end. She doesn't get the guy, but she doesn't convert, and she, you know, makes it to the end of the story. <laughs> That's pretty impressive, to be honest. Yeah, it's a remarkable novel. Um, even now, when you read it, sort of as a 21st century person um it's really and and for someone written by some like rich white scottish guy (laughs) (laughs) the early victoria someone who really he has the way he writes of actually about you know his jewish woman is like you know pretty on point um and very nuanced and it's a wonderful character rebecca actually is one of the few story there are things that are very problematic um Mm-hmm. She holds up. She's very spunky. She's very funny. She's very brave. It's like the conversionist novels and Ivanhoe are definitely what you're seeing, I think, in how Aguilar presents the characters in The Veil of the Cedars. Yeah, I actually, I have never, Ivanhoe is one of those books that I've never actually read. You don't have actually, <laughs> it's a funny thing with Ivanhoe. Like, in the 19th century, everyone read it. Now, very few people have read it, but whether or not you have read it, you know the story. <laughs> it's crusaders, it's knights, they joust, there's chivalry. Um, yeah, damsel in distress. <laughs> but yeah, going back to portrayal of Jewish women in the fair Jewish trope and specifically what Grace Aguilar is doing, 
I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about about Marie and her portrayal and how she fits into the fair Jewish fair Jewess stereotype mm-hmm. and where Grace Aguilar is kind of diverging from that stereotype. Okay, sure. Um, am I allowed to do spoilers? Uh. I mean, it's called The Martyr, so we're kind of all assuming that she dies at the end. (laughs) Uh, But, like, I would say, spoiler light. And if you say any spoilers, then I will be spoiled and forever ruined, but I can edit it out for our readers so that their ears may remain pure. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, yeah, keep in mind that the story is called The Martyr. Um... In many ways, I think Marie really does reflect a lot of the sort of tropes that you see about the fair Jewess. Um, she, again, is beautiful. She's assimilated. She outwardly lives in a Christian world and mostly functions in it. It's still grappling with being Jewish. And in many ways, Marie embodies a lot of the reports you see about the fair Jewess. Uh, she's beautiful. Uh, she's interested in a non-Jewish man. Um, she is assimilated and sort of you know, is ready to enter in some ways Christian society. Um, but what you can see with her, which you don't see in a lot of the other depictions, let's say in the conversionist novels, is someone again who is not willing to give up this personal aspect of themselves and this part and their Jewish part of their identity. Usually, again, you think of like Jessica and the Merchant of Venice or some of these conversion novels, the Jewish women can't wait to sort of throw it all away. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Whereas you see with Marie, she really struggles and she's really grappling with this. Um, and particularly in a world that is extremely hostile to Jewish identity. So yeah, I think those are sort of how you see um, Aguilar are sort of approaching the trope um, and working with that. Um, and again, whereas let's say, and here's, I guess, the big difference with a lot of the conversionist novels, they're usually written by non, non-Jews, mm-hmm. obviously, because they're uh, converting Jews. And so their concerns are different. They're looking at portraying sort of Jewish women for the benefit of a Christian audience. So they're sympathetic, those characters, because they don't want to be Jews. Um, and they're ultimately Christian at heart. What you see here is Aguilar isn't, you know, wants to write a character that is sympathetic to a non-Jewish audience, but she's also speaking directly to Jewish readers. And this sort of comes across, again, the way she sort of portrays this inner conflict and the fear and all these questions about grappling with assimilation, which you figure are not just relevant to someone in, you know, in Spain at that time, but someone who lives a comfortable upper middle class existence in Victorian England the way Aguilar does. So this is a, a trope that has existed since Elizabethan times. Now we're already up to Victorian times. A couple of hundred years have passed. Um, so where does the fair Jewess fit into Victorian society? You talked about how the Jew was the, as we said, like the the close by convert. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things, some things I found in my own again, just initial research, is that Jews were kind of this prototypical other in, in English culture. 
Um, and in the Victorian era, like one thing we've talked about on this show a little bit is, um, and right in Victorian society, Victorian era, right. The expansion of colonialism is going apace. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really the era of its biggest and last biggest push, mm-hmm. uh, of, of English colonialism. Um, so the question of what it meant to be English is all of a sudden much more pronounced. Um, so using Jews as a way to look at who is English um, is something that uh, some scholars have talked about. Yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's interesting, actually. Um, there's a fantastic book. I'm blanking on the author's name, but it's, I think the book I know it's called Shakespeare and the Jews. Um, mm-hmm. And the central thesis of the book, it's about, you know, the Merchant of Venice, but it goes sort of deeper and looks at the ways that, you know, a lot of sort of this idea of Britain and this idea of English society was sort of defined in opposition to Jewishness. Um, yeah. Way huh. The thing, the sort of, yeah, it, that, it, that it sort of became this way that, yeah, Englishness developed in opposition to Jewishness. It's a very interesting argument, and I don't know if I'm doing justice to it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely interesting sort of the way that manifests, particularly in, in the Victorian era. Um, I think especially with this idea of the fair Jewess, um, sort of another key element is that there is something about her always that's exotic and other. We definitely see that in Ivanhoe, um, which was sort of the subject of my thesis, is there's a lot of Orientalism in the way yeah. Jews in general and specifically Jewish women are described. Um, so Orientalism, just I, if anyone's listening who doesn't understand, it's this sort of the exoticizing or the fetishizing of the East um, and sort of presenting that is this other in opposition to sort of Western culture and Western ways of life. And especially within the, you know, in the 19th century, the Jews in England, regardless of how long they had been in Britain or whether they were German Jews or, you know, Sephardic Jews, they were sort of perceived as this like Eastern other identity. And that's really sort of clearly reflected in a lot of the ways they're written about. Um, and I think you def- you see this, I think, in, in the work of Aguilar and even the work of some of the other Jewish women who are writing in this time, um, sort of regardless of sort of their own backgrounds and where they're coming from. I think they're all grappling with this idea of what is an English person and am I as a Jewish woman really an English person? Um and I think the results and sort of the argument and the conclusions they come to make it sort of all the more interesting. Yeah, let's actually, I'd love to hear some more about the other uh, Jewish women authors mm-hmm. of this time um, and how just them on their own, but also how they fit into Aguilar and these bigger cultural conversations. Oh, uh, sure. So in, especially in British Jewish lit you sort of have these two, like the two women who sort of are the two sort of big points in the 19th century are Aguilar and uh, Amy Levy. And they sort of represent two ways of understanding sort of Jewish identity and Jewish womanhood and sort of two sides of an argument that's happening throughout a lot of like Jewish discourse. Um, And they're both sort of responding to these representations of Jewish people and sort of come to two different conclusions. What you see in Aguilar is she's looking, 
she's engaging with sort of historical romance um, and this idea of the romance of Jewish history and Jewish peoplehood. Um, romance sort of in the 19th century sense being um, sort of that historical adventure and intrigue and that sort of lush storytelling. Um, and again, with these sort of romantic ideas of what it is, of what Jewish history is and Jewish identity. On the other hand, you have pushback against that um, from the likes of Amy Levy, who essentially argue that, you know, Jews at the end of the day are just like anyone else. Um, and that when we write about Jews, we should write about them not as these romantic ideals or these romantic notions of our history, but as sort of ordinary people who have the same problems as everyone else. <laughs> and what develops, I it's really interesting sort of the way the literature develops because you have these sort of disparate ideas floating around. Um, and they both, I think, wrote remarkable books in their own right um, that I think are both useful in their own ways. So those are the two big ones. Um, you also see other authors, there's Celia and Marion Moss, who were writers from that romantic historical romance tradition. And I think of, let's say on the American side, an author like Emma Lazarus, and poet obviously is someone who similarly is more toward this idea of this romance of Jewish identity. Yeah. And, and sort of in using sort of these ideas about um, especially Sephardic Jewish history in understanding Jewish identity in the present and developing this idea of sort of a positive identity. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. Again, I have very little background on this uh, before doing this. Um, but the the central part of the debate of is Judea- like celebrating Jewishness as this unique, wonderful thing versus also trying to engage with the public as being, it's not, don't exoticize it, don't say it's weird, it's a, just another normal way of being, yeah. um, is still like so relevant to discussions going on now. That's a great message to leave us off with. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, 